Today, we're going to talk about p-hacking and why under certain conditions, more data is more dangerous in the sense of increasing the risk of drawing a spurious conclusion from data. Welcome to the Dr. Data Show. This is Eric Siegel, and we often hear these well-touted phrases, if you torture the data long enough, it will confess. And there are three kinds of lies, lies, damn lies, and statistics. So under the umbrella of these sorts of concerns, we have the quintessential mistake called p-hacking. So we're going to describe p-hacking, give a bunch of examples, and in so doing, I will answer the question, when is bigger data more dangerous? So even if we have a representative sample of data, so it's not biased in that technical sense, and uh, the data doesn't have a lot of errors, incorrect values, no noise in that sense of the word, even with those in place, there's a certain condition in which more data increases the chance of you drawing a false conclusion from data. So that sounds strange, right? Usually the more data, the better. We want more data. That's the, that's the fuel for, from which uh, the machine serves its burning desire to learn. Um, and it learns all sorts of things, all sorts of entertaining uh, uh, anecdotes. People who spend with a credit card at a bar are more likely to miss repeat credit card bill statements. They have a higher risk in that way. But if you buy felt pads to protect the floor from the bottom of your, of your chair, uh, the, the, the legs of your chair, you're a better credit risk in that respect. Um, in certain neighborhoods of San Francisco that exhibit a higher rate of crime, there's also a higher demand for Uber rides. Um, all these kinds of people who like curly fries on Facebook are more intelligent. So the meaning behind these, the causality, is not what we're talking about today. Whether or not these are causal relationships and whether or not we can establish the causal reasoning behind them, that's a, that's a topic for another day. The real question is whether the relationships hold true, and therefore, if they do, they're predictive of one another. They can serve as components of a of a predictive model, as an independent as an independent input variable. The question is, does it hold true? You saw in the data, but just how reliable is that observation? So let's start with a tragic example involving orange lemons. In 2012, the Seattle Times. I ran an article that said an orange used car is least likely to be a lemon. Now, a lemon means you bought a used car and it breaks down, it's unsatisfactory, it's a, it was a bad buy. So according to this insight, if the color of the used car is orange, it's prone to be more reliable. If the car is painted orange, it has a lower probability of being lemon. So if you go to the used car lot, it could help your odds choosing a car that's orange. Now, that's what it showed in the data. Is it true? Does it, does it hold merit? 
Well, this, uh, this finding, which is from a, a data set from a Kaggle competition, that is a, a public predictive modeling competition, was a little database of used cars and whether each one turned out to be a lemon. And this finding in the data was also reported by the Huffington Post, NPR, Wall Street Journal, the New York Times, and the best-selling book, Big Data. And the specific finding was that, well, across all of the used cars, it turned out that 12.3% were lemons. But among the cars, the subset of cars that were orange, only 8.2%, so 33% fewer. So you've dramatically reduced your risk if you move to orange. And in fact, that particular finding in isolation was considered confirmed by a standard statistical test, which had a result with a p-value less than 1%. So we don't have to get too into statistics to understand what went wrong here. But let me just tell you what the p-value is. Saying, well, if it's less than 1%, it's saying that if this finding were false, if, there, if, all the, if the colors didn't make a difference or it being orange didn't make a difference at all, well, there's still a chance that in any given set of data, then random perturbations, just happenstance, would indeed show a difference at this same extreme. Not that it's that extreme, but it's, it's, it's a pretty meaningful decrease in risk, 33% lower risk, down to 8.2% risk of being a lemon. So if it were not true, there's a less than 1% chance it would show up this way in data. So that's taken, or was taken, uh, as, as evidence, as strong evidence that it's a very unlikely that we would have seen this data if it's not true. So... It is true. Let's pronounce it true. Let's publish it, put it out in the world, and then all of these, you know, the press will follow suit and they'll report on it as a fact. But the problem is when you, um, th this statistical test uh, was not put into the correct context. And the context was that the researcher looked at a lot more than just the color of the car and, and just whether it was orange, because there's a lot of other colors. And by looking at a lot of different possibilities, a lot of different hypotheses, they came across something that looks good in isolation. But you have to put the context. So that's what I'm going to go through, a little story about turning a, um, uh, a jackpot wheel and how that directly is reflective and analogous. So we're going to make it very intuitive about how that happens and why it's an understandable human error, but an error nonetheless, one that must be avoided, called p-hacking, right? So how do you know when you get something? That, I mean, this is, this is um, fundamental to the credibility of drawing inferences from data, of finding generalities, of learning something from the data. Right, even if it only pertains to one variable, which is what we're focused on for most of these examples. You know, a predictive model maybe uh, is combining multiple variables, and that's typically the whole point of machine learning to create a model that's multivariate. But even if you're just looking at one model, uh, one variable, that's where we got to start to understand this. How do you know that the discovery in the data actually holds true? It's reflective of what's true in the world, worthy of publication 
versus being BS. And by BS, of course, I mean bologna sandwich. Um, but actually, BS actually stands for something else, too. It also means bad science. So Bertrand Russell is famous for saying, the trouble with the world is that the stupid are cocksure and the intelligent are full of doubt. So let's say you have a cocksure friend who calls you up very excited. They just won the jackpot. They spun the jackpot wheel, one in a hundred chance of winning, and they won. And they called you up. They said, oh, can you believe it? I must be so lucky. This is a great day. I just won the jackpot. And then you say, well, okay, hold on. Before I get excited, you say back to your friend, let me ask you one question just to put this turn of events into the proper full context. How many times did you spin the wheel before you won? And then the friend says, oh, well, you know, I've been here for all day. I actually spun it 70 times. 70 times. Won 100 chance of winning and they spun it 70 times. Well, off the top of my head, that doesn't sound nearly as impressive. I mean, you know, if you spin it enough times, eventually you're going to win, right? Well, actually, you know, it would help a lot if we just did a little bit of arithmetic and found out exactly what that does to the odds. You know, if you spin it once, you've got a 1% chance of winning. It's a 1 out of 100 jackpot. So, well, let's say you spin twice. Well, we, we know pretty intuitively the um, chances of winning both times, right? It's 1% of 1%. It's 1 out of 100 squared. 1 out of 100 times 1 out of 100, right? That's 1 out of 10,000. So the chances of winning two in a row are really low, and the chances of winning three in a row are even lower than that. But that's actually not the pertinent question. What we want to know is, what are the chances of winning at least once across 70 spins? What are the chances of winning at least once across 70 spins? Okay, well, the trick to figuring that out is figure out what are the chances of losing every time across 70 spins. Well, the chance of losing across one spin, you spin the wheel, you have a 99% chance of winning, 99 out of 100. Uh, I'm sorry, of, of losing. <laughs> you only have a 1% chance of winning. So if you spin it twice, you've got uh, 99 out of 100 uh, for losing the first and the same for the second. So if you square it, 99 over 100 times 99 over 100, you get about 98%. So indeed, you'll probably lose both times. You've got a slightly lower chance, but still a 98% chance that you'll lose both spins if you do two spins. And if you did three spins, you multiply that by 99 over 100 again. So it turns out if you do five spins, you do 99 over 100 raised to the power of five. And if you do 70 spins, you do 99 over 100 raised to the power of 70. But I don't recommend trying to calculate that off in, in, in your head, um, although I know some people can, but if you whip out your calculator, uh, 99 over the 100 uh, up raised to the power of 70 equals point, point 0.495, that is to say about 0.5. So there's about 50-50 odds that you'll lose all 70 spins and therefore about 50-50 odds that you'll win at least one spin. 
right? There's only two possibilities. Either you're always going to lose across a bunch of spins, or you'll not always lose. That is to say, you'll win at least once. So the chances of winning at least once is 50% after spinning 70 times. That's the way it turns out. It turns out that the math is exactly the same if you want to calculate the odds of being fooled by noise. And in this context, I mean randomness. Random perturbations. That's what I mean by noise. Because the more you try out different hypotheses, collect the data, examine it, the more you're subjecting yourself to what may initially be a remote risk of randomly being misled into a higher and higher risk that at least something or another is going to pop, but not because it's true, simply random, out of random, per, random perturbations. So in the traditional scientific method, this is not nearly as much of an issue as it is with let's call it data science, you know, with using a computer to try a whole bunch of different variables out. The traditional scientific method, you know, you form a hypothesis and test it. It'll be a little more specific. You form the hypothesis and you create an experiment to somehow collect the data, then you analyze the sort of results of that data. And that iterative process of hypothesize and test is, you know, classically done manually. So in that context where there's going to be sort of an intrinsic mortal limit on the number of uh, hypotheses that you actually test, the p-hacking thing is less of an issue. And in that context, the statistical test that shows you the p-value in isolation may be enough. You may not need to worry as much about context. But the context quickly counts, catches up to you when you start churning out uh, tests of hypotheses, because that's what a computer is in the context of um, predictive modeling, machine learning, data science. It's a hypothesis testing machine, and you're giving it a bunch of hypotheses. In this case, for used cars, you're giving it a bunch of columns of data. Each used car, and as you might imagine, in this database has the basics um, in that table of data, the make the model, the year, the size, the color, and a bunch of stuff like that. And then on the rightmost column, typically, is the thing you're trying to predict. In this case, yes, no, is did the car turn out to be a lemon? And each one of those columns is a hypothesis. So you're saying, hey, does the make of the car change the odds of it being a lemon? Does the model, does the color? And in fact, let's get a little more specific. Each of these columns is actually a bunch of hypotheses because in the case of color, if we're looking at each color in, a, in isolation, right, silver, white, black, red, blue, orange, each of these is a hypothesis. Does whether or not the car is orange impact the probability of being a lemon? Does whether or not the car is white impact the probability of being a lemon, etc.? So you're testing a whole bunch of hypotheses. Each column kind of explodes out into multiple virtual columns, multiple hypotheses. So let's think of it in, a, in, a, in a, a fun example. Let's say you're trying to cure baldness. 
And if you didn't know this already, it's turned out that baldness is really hard to cure. But we can sure as heck come up with a whole bunch of creative uh, hypotheses about treatments for baldness. And, you know, you don't know for sure if it might cure baldness until you test it. So, for example, taking a banana and applying it topically to your bald head. Watching the Brady Bunch. Touching Bruce Willis. Do any of these treatments potentially cure baldness? There's only one way to find out. You collect a sample of subjects, apply the treatment, and then wait and see whether they start growing their hair back. And then you have a bunch of subjects who just get a placebo. And in this case, let's say eating spam. That's the placebo. Then you wait around and you say, hey, uh, did any of these things work? Well, let's say that we come up with 70 hypotheses. You know, you put dirt on your head, you uh, dance to disco, but only between the hours of two and four in the morning. So all these are potential treatments. But let's assume for the moment none of them actually work. Let's assume they're all false hypotheses. None of these are actually viable treatments. They're not going to increase hair growth. Of all the subjects in our data collection efforts, all these, um, and this is going to be a very expensive operation, getting all these people to, to subject themselves to these treatments and measuring over time whether they grow their hair back. But we have a really large budget for this study. In any case, some of these subjects will grow more hair than others just by random chance. And, and if we're under the assumption that none of these treatments actually work, then there, that difference is unrelated to these treatments, to whether they had the banana on their head or touched Bruce. Bruce Willis or whatever it was. So um, randomly, some will look more than others. So if we only tested one of these and it's not a good treatment for baldness, chances are our experiments will show that. We'll show, hey, I'm sorry, this just didn't work out. It's not going to help treat baldness. But if we try 70 and our standard is... um, the statistical test where we're looking at a p-value. And we want to say, well, well, we just want to see the p-value less than 1%. In other words, we want to see a situation where there's less than a 1% chance that it would have shown up in the data even if it weren't true. So a really relatively small chance that it would show in the data if it weren't true. Well, um, That means any given one of them is unlikely to, but the odds for each of these that we try is about the same as the jackpot wheel. There's almost 1% chance that we'll get something that was really unlikely um, to show up, right? The banana treatment does not work, but there's a 1% chance that it's going to show some results that are a 1% chance of happening. That's the definition of a p-value. What are the chances it'll show up um, if it's not true? If the banana does not help, what are the chances we'll see something in the data that looks compelling despite that? Less than 1%. We're having a 1% risk every time we test a hypothesis. 
every time you do that scientific test of a hypothesis, you're subjecting yourself to a risk of something in the data looking like it's potentially meaningful. And that risk accumulates exactly the same with the jackpot wheel and the testing of hypothesis. Put it this way, spin the wheel enough times, eventually you'll get lucky. Test enough false hypotheses and eventually you'll get unlucky in that the data happens from random perturbation to display what appears to be a positive result. Aristotle said it's probable that improbable things will happen. Bill Gates said, um, when you're in China and you're one out of a million, there are 1,300 people just like you, which I think needs to be updated to 14 or 1,500 now at this point. But you get the point. The same math applies. That's that same arithmetic where we raise 99 over 100 to the 70th power. There's about a 50% chance over 70 false hypotheses that something will get a p-value less than or at least equal to 1%. So this is p-hacking, where you're trying lots of different hypotheses. And when you, when you first sort of let this sink in, you realize, oh boy, it's frustrating. Because what we want to have credibility about the results of, of, of uh, any kind of data analysis, we want to be able to be confident and enlist um, the confidence of any colleagues, be they technical or otherwise. Um, I mean, this is, if, if one of the main themes of this podcast is the problem with getting um, the results of analysis deployed, this kind of credibility issue is very frustrating. You can initially, when it sinks in, you might initially feel this lack of control. Oh, what can I do? I mean, that means... How, how can I leverage the power of computation? Because that's what a computer is good for, is trying a bunch of things automatically. And that be, in that way, being kind of a robo-scientist, to try lots of hypotheses and a rote effort, find what any one of them might help predict whatever it is we're trying to predict, like whether a car is a lemon or not, whether a customer is going to cancel, whether a debtor is going to um, default on their loan, whatever the thing you're trying to predict is. So... This perplexing and common human error is called p-hacking because you're kind of hacking, you're trying it out a bunch of times. But there's a whole bunch of synonyms and this issue, this problem has been discovered and rediscovered across lots of different industries. So it's kind of funny all the different terminology people have come up for for it, um, including uh, vast search. John Elder calls it that. Multiple comparisons trap multiple hypothesis testing, um, over-search, look elsewhere effect, because it's like, well, I didn't this, I tried this hypothesis, it didn't work, but I'll look somewhere else until I find one that does. Going on a fishing expedition, cherry-picking findings, data dredging, significance chasing, and the curse of dimensionality. So... Um, Let's go through um, a, a few more examples, um, and then we'll talk about how you address this, how you secure the analysis so that you don't fall prey or fall victim to p-hacking. Uh, 
uh, Nassim Taleb and his book Fooled by Random, uh, Fooled by Randomness, I mean, that's the name of the book is, is about the same broad concept, right? And in the book, he says, I'm not saying that Warren Buffett is not skilled, only that a large population of random investors will almost necessarily produce someone with his track record just by luck. Um, David Lineweber, who wrote the book Nerds on Wall Street, um, actually did some p-hacking on purpose in order to illustrate the problem of p-hacking and how this can arise with a colorful example showing that it turned out that the price of butter in Bangladesh was closely predictive between the years of 1981 and 1993 of the S&P 500 or the Dow Jones Industrial Average, something, uh, some major economic um, metric in the United States. Very closely fit. And he did that by just trying a whole bunch of things from a global set of economic indicators. And butter in Bangladesh just happened to match up perfectly for that range of years. So he went on the, uh, you know, he put it in his book, Nerds on Wall Street, and he went on the uh, media circuit, and he's like, look at how ludicrous this is, right? Um, You can't predict uh, the U.S. economy based on the rate of butter production in Bangladesh. Isn't that funny? Ha, ha, ha. And then he said, quote, I got calls for years asking me what the current butter business in Bangladesh was looking like. And I kept saying, you know, it was a joke. It was a joke. It's scary how few people actually get that, unquote. So you'd see lots of spurious claims where people kind of do data analysis and they say, hey, look, the the rate of buried treasure discovery, the width of, of neckties, the hemline of, of, of women's dresses, uh, the rate of snowfall on Christmas Day. These things are all predictive of the next year's economy. And, and, and you see these kinds of things in data. A lot of those things typically, though, they're not actually applying rigorous statistical methods. P-hacking is what happens when you're applying uh, a traditional statistical method and establishing a low p-value, but you're not taking context into account. And the context is how many different hypotheses are you testing. Um, that comes up plenty of times. So it turned out that one study claimed that the circumference of upper arms of college males was predictive of how aggressive they are in financial negotiations. Um, this was later debunked as inconclusive and uh, the, you know where the confidence was overblown with, because of p-hacking. They hadn't taken the vastness of the hypothesis search into account. So let's look specifically at this result um, that we started out with um, of orange lemons. Right, The cars overall had about a 12.3% chance of being a lemon. But the orange cars had only an 8.2% chance. And this was from a data set of almost 73,000 cars with almost 9,000 that were lemons. But there weren't that many orange cars, right? And so orange is kind of an unusual um, color for a car, and it's uh, kind of a bright color or striking, which is part of the narrative richness, why this got got attention, and also part of the rationalization, the sort of causal... Um, inference that humans uh, made ad hoc to try to explain it. Well, hey, you know, people who buy unusually colored cars, 
uh, probably take better care of their car. So that's why a lower proportion of them turn out to be lemons. Something like that. This is all among used cars, after all. Um, in any case, uh, orange cars are relatively rare. And in this data set of 73,000 cars, only 415 were orange. And among the orange ones, only 34 were lemons. So that's how we come up with that 8.2% chance. Right? We're just dividing numbers. And you might think, well, that's a pretty small number of lemons, 34, 34 out of 415. Is that ultimately it? It's just the sheer count is too low. So how could you ever draw a strong conclusion? Well, the answer is no. You know, when, you have, when, you're dealing, when you're in the hundreds, it turns out that you can often get things that are fairly conclusive. And that's the whole point of the statistical test which takes those absolute numbers into account and their magnitude, right? The bigger the numbers are, um, the more evidence there is, and it takes that into account in calculating the probability of seeing this result even if the hypothesis were false. Um, so that in and of itself isn't the problem. The problem is th the bigger context that, it was, that you were trying so many different um, colors out. So... There are various ways to try to um, incorporate that context. So, for example, my colleague John Elder came up with a method called target shuffling, which is a randomized method, a stochastic method, where you basically take your data set and completely randomly uh, reorder the target column, the dependent variable, the thing you're trying to predict. So in this case, it's whether they're a lemon or not. So you take all the yeses and nos in that column and just change them around in a different order. You still have the same um, proportion, the same number of yeses and the same number of nos. And that way you end up with a data set where there should be no connection, um, no predictability, nothing to discover. Because it's just it was done randomly on purpose. And if you do that repeatedly, how often do you find a, a similar result anyway? Well, if you do that as a means to sort of estimate the chances and adjust for that probability of, a, of what's basically a spurious result, the chances of this orange discovery, um, instead of being below 1% of being a result, even if it were a false hypothesis, zooms up to 7.2%. Now, 7.2% is not nothing. I mean, it's still a lot less than 50%, but it's a much higher, much higher than less than 1%. It's not the kind of thing you should hang your hat on and say, hey, you know what, I'm going to publish this as a conclusive finding. Orange cars are better to buy. They are less likely to be a lemon. Um, it's inconclusive. You need more data. You need more evidence. Um, and the calculation of that actually was just done for demonstration over color. It didn't take account into account all the other things that were also searched, such as um, the make, model, year, um, type of car, etc. So across all these columns. So it's going to actually turn out to be a lot higher than 7.2% chance. Um, now, uh, target shuffling, um, and if you want to learn more about that, there's a, an article that I'm linking from the podcast description called Are Orange Cars Really Not Lemons? by John Elder and his colleague Ben Bullard at Elder Research, and I will, I will link that. You can learn some more of the nitty-gritty details of that particular example and of that particular approach 
to accounting for um, vastness of search to the, as an antidote to, to p-hacking. There are also um, well-trodden arithmetic methods rather than stochastic, you know, random simulation methods. Um, so it turns out um, that there's basically bad news and good news. The bad news is that this, that p-hacking is super prevalent. Um, it's very common. And uh, one of the main reasons is that univariate discoveries, where it's just one model like the color of the car, I'm sorry, it's just one variable like the color of the car, um, that's going to grab a headline. Um, so it's, it's a very simple discovery. It's not like a multivariate model where you've got relationships between lots of different variables. At the same time, though, it can elude the um, machine learning practitioner's um, embedded knowledge that you must have a separate test set. So ultimately, the solution is to have the Heldicide test set so that when you train the model, when you develop the, find the, make the discoveries, do the machine learning, train the model, um, perform predictive modeling algorithms. Those are all the same concept. And you get the discoveries or the model that then you're evaluating it over a separate Heldicide test set so that you have an objective measure of how well it works. But when people aren't really developing full-fledged models and they're just doing one variable, they underestimate the potential for that same phenomenon of overlearning or overfitting the data. And p-hacking is basically when you're overfitting even though it's only a one variable model. So this is just, it's the thing that's gonna get the biggest attention and appear in the New York Times, but it's also the thing that's gonna get the least caution by the data scientists. Anyway, the good news is that you can avoid um, p-hacking and not be ruled by randomness. And the, the fail-safe is to do one of a couple things. One is to have more data. So I brought up that question of when is more data more, uh, more dangerous? The answer is when the data is wider. So when, it's, when there's more data horizontally in the table of example used cars or you know that's typically the way the data looks it's simply a two-dimensional table and one row per example if it's wider more factors known about each individual that is more independent variables um, then you're subjecting yourself to that vaster and vaster search the wider search whereas if the data is longer more examples that's better and decreases the chance of 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 being a victim to p-hacking. So if the data gets wider, do what you can to make it also longer. And then, of course, apply that same best practice, which is to employ a Heldicide test set. Make your discoveries over the training set, over one set of data, and then the Heldicide set is only used to evaluate objectively um, the discoveries you land on. If the test set gets tainted, if you've already failed to separate the test set, then you can start using approaches such as John Elder's um, uh, target shuffling method. And, uh, and that's basically it. So this is not an ultimate uh, um, failure on the part of data science. It's not a problem fundamentally with credibility. It's not the statistics are intrinsically subjective or vulnerable. This is a human error, maybe an understandable one from a psychological standpoint, but it's simply one that 
for which there needs to be more training and awareness, uh, awareness so that people know, hey, if you're testing lots of hypotheses, lots of different potential variables, lots of different relationships in the data, you have to take into account the vastness of that search and or have a held aside test set so that when a discovery pops after trying enough spins of the jackpot wheel, you're going to win eventually. And then you're going to want to know, did I really win? Was this discovery valid? Is it actually a truth in the world? Or did it only come of random perturbations in the data? So we have a couple questions from our avid listening audience. How can you ever be 100% sure that a conclusion from data is true? How can you ever be 100% sure a conclusion from data is true. You can't be 100% sure, but you can be close enough. It's a pragmatic question. There's always some chance that you just happen to be really unlucky and get a collection of data, a sample, wherein random perturbations unrelated to your hypothesis end up making it look like the hypothesis is true but it's not. No matter what you do, there's always some chance that, you know, the universe is out to get you by some really crazy chance, you know. It's kind of like those um, infinite number of monkeys with typewriters, right? Eventually, they'll type all the complete works of William Shakespeare, but not because they understand English. Um, But what we can do is get the odds, the risk, of that type of wild occurrence um, quantified and make it small enough to be comfortable, you know, like much smaller than getting struck by lightning, uh, very, very small. And um, now the standard for publishing in scientific research arguably does not keep it low enough, but the fact is one way or another, you can make that determination, you can measure it. Um, and we can make standards that are more stringent. Let's go to another question. How is overfitting possible when there is only one independent variable? Yeah, there's only one independent variable. We're just looking at, is the car orange? How can you overfit on that? Because overfitting, the traditional idea of overfitting is that a model that can be complex and combine multiple variables together can add and subtract them, can, can, can manipulate them. Um, for example, a decision tree can drill down to a sub-sub-sub-segment of the data set where the thing appears to be true. Um, and it's, it's got that sort of more, more degrees of freedom is the, is the way people express it. In other words, that's why p-hacking is sometimes called the curse of dimensionality. Um, you don't have the dimensions. You've got one dimension. Is it orange or not? Um, But you do have the dimensions. That's the thing that's being overlooked. That's the tragic human flaw, the human error everyone's making, is that you are looking at multiple dimensions, even if only one of them pops. You're finding the, even if you're limiting, in a sense, restricting your model to only deal with one variable at a time, you're trying to figure out which variable it should use. And so you're exploring all the variables, a bunch of dimensions, until you just happen to find the one that on this particular data set looks meaningful in terms of, of the relationship to 
the target, the dependent variable, the thing you're trying to predict. So that's part of the narrative. That's part of the story here is that the same thing that's going to attract bigger headlines and be more accessible to lay people and therefore get that much more um, blaring attention in even as far as the media is exactly where data scientists are going to underestimate the need for protecting against overfitting or in the case of a single variable, it's really not usually called overfitting. It's called p-hacking. So if you want to read more, you can. Um, I covered this concept in a similar level of detail uh, within my book, Predictive Analytics, in Chapter 3. If you want to see my notes, that is the references and citations to dig in for more, uh, and you do not have the book, that's okay. You can go to predictivenotes.com, download the PDF of those notes, and then look into chapter three and find the section on vast search or, or look for the word p-hacking in that P PDF, p-hacking. And then as I mentioned earlier, and I'll link this as well, um, there's a uh, Elder and Bullard's article, Are Orange Cars Really Not Lemons? <laughs>